Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, back from my much-needed vacation, here with the person who holds it all together, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on? That's one way to describe my sticky qualities. <laughs> He's holding it. He has the adhesive trait, uh, just like <laughs> oh, a mimic. I love that. Yeah. You've yeah. been dealing with monsters, I can tell. Can you tell? I've had a few monsters on the brain recently. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, there is so much news that we're going to jump right into it. Uh, first bit of news being uh, ICV2 has released their quarter one 2021 rankings. So if you've listened to the show before, you know that ICV2 uh, reviews retailers, distributors, manufacturers, and then ranks the games. Uh, you have to take it with a big grain of salt because they don't take things like Amazon into account, which I've heard might sell a few books here and there. I heard that too. Yeah. So they, they say that spring 2021 showed that uh, hobby stores were coming back from COVID closures. However, supply chain issues have remained problematic, especially the delays and increase in costs of shipping, especially international shipping. So. You know Sean, I've got two things to add here that are interesting. So one is on Twitter, I saw a report from a Kickstarter where they shared that the costs of shipping when they opened up their pledge manager. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right after it funded all, right. um, this is in March, 2019, they had a shipping quote of $34,000, 500 for everything. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but then they had to make the thing. Right. So by the time they had made the thing, which was in July, two years later, mm -hmm. Uh, the price of shipping had gone from $34,000 to $218,000. That's a six-time increase for those uh, people yeah. who need a little help with their math. And so, I just heard yeah. on Twitter today that WizKids, when you buy direct from WizKids, they're now adding a 5% surcharge, temporary surcharge, something like that, to shipping. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've heard similar things from many companies, especially companies that are you know doing overseas um, distribution and manufacturing. That it's it's absolutely out of control. And Yikes. yeah, it, there is no promise that it's going to get better. But I feel horrible for those companies that did you know did the math based on what they thought shipping would be, and then to have that cost increase six times, uh, not good. Yeah, and I think something we're going to see is companies that are going to try to delay shipping in hopes that it gets better, which is a gamble to take, right? Because yep. it could get worse. It could get worse, yeah. But the hope is that this is all going to... My understanding is there's a mass of problems around shipping containers sitting in various docks. And so the, the theory that everybody's hoping is this will clear up at some point, it will get better, and then that will all be improved. But we can't be sure. Yeah, it's... It's not a simple problem as someone who has dealt with complex logistical problems in other areas. This is like high, high, high level theoretical math sort of stuff on, on moving things from one place to another when you rely on you know, other things happening. And uh, if there was an easy solution to it, it would be solved. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So we'll see. But, but, you know, back to the actual RPG side of things, their top five uh, most popular role-playing games for quarter one of 2021. Not surprisingly, at the top is D&D. &D. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Taking over the number two spot is Cyberpunk. Ooh. Yeah. Which huh. is, it's surprising, but it's not. Uh, in, in the sense that it they just came out with a new edition, right? That's, or with, you know, within the last little bit. Yeah. Though, if I try to imagine what Cyberpunk sales are like, I tend to think that they are an entire category lower than D&D. Oh, for sure. And so then that means that Pathfinder is down in that category again. And and that was rather my... Rather than where they yeah. were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that, that was my other reason for not surprising is <laughs> probably Pathfinder, which is now third, continues to fall as D&D continues to rise. Yeah. Uh, coming in at four is something that Teos is now familiar with, which is yeah. the Alien RPG. I'm a fan. It's really great. And it, it speaks to how a company that was kind of unheard of not mm-hmm. too long ago has really jumped onto the scene, not just with Kickstarter, but in store sales, which is impressive. Yep. Yep. And coming in at number five is 5e compatible, which is oh a, a category apparently. Uh, and Teos notes in our show notes that this is only the second time that that category has actually made the list. Uh, so I'm not sure what is included in 5e compatible. Anything other than D&D that's 5e? I think what this is is a lump of sort of third-party products. Because mm-hmm. what will happen, and I see this at my local gaming stores, that they will buy things they see on Kickstarter. And it can be big things like, say, MCDM. Uh, it can be small, small things, you know, something that's, that's a, a relatively small, we might not have heard of product but they think it'll sell on their shelves. And so they will, they will pick that up and they'll carry it. Um, and, and I think that's what we're really talking about. It could okay. also be all kinds of accessories and things like that. It doesn't have to be just books, but things yeah. that are really built for 5e and are using that engine. And that speaks to, you know, all of those third-party sales being so big that they land in at this spot yeah. over all these other games. That's, that's impressive. Yep. Uh, and if you're interested in other kinds of games and other uh, product lines, they also have categories for like the top five non-collectible miniature lines, uh, top collectible card games or dice games or you know uh, board games. So all of that information is available on the article from ICV2.com that we link in the show notes. But Teos is going to add a little bit here. Yeah, I just want to add that in, in two of those categories, WizKids shows up multiple times through their various minis. And so it's just worth noting that they're actually bigger than you think they are because they stretch into these different categories across their different types of unpainted minis, collectible things, games. Um, so they're, they're, you know, they're worth remembering what a major player they are in this space. Yeah, they, yeah, they have collectible card games, uh, collectible mini games, uh categories that that they show up in. So pretty cool. Uh, Yeah. And I also want to add, just as we're recording right at this minute, (laughs) there is a Hasbro earnings call going on. And uh, comicbook.com had some early news from the call that they're apparently watching. They even shared a slide from it. And this slide that they shared was really impressive. Net revenue growth for Hasbro uh, and I think this was actually for the wizard. Yeah, this is for Wizards of the Coast. And this is not all of Hasbro. This is for Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segment of the, mm-hmm. of Hasbro. Um, so it's the part we care about the yep. most. Um, net revenue growth increased 63% from 2019 to 2020. 
from 2020 to 2021. Mm -hmm. So this is the growth going up from 397 to $649 million. Um, now that does include magic, of course, or no, sorry. Yeah, it includes magic uh, and it includes the digital area, like things like magic arena, um, but, uh, and, and the video games, um, the operating profit increased 78% mm -hmm. from 170 million to 303 million of operating profit. Those are all great numbers for the size that we're talking about. I mean, that's impressive when you, when you're having 60 and 70% uh, on your increases, that's yeah. really something. And it's even more notable in the sense in, for, for the fact that it's been like this continually. It wasn't like they saw a huge decrease and then an increase. Right. And I did hear some people say, well, yeah, because of COVID, everyone stayed home. So they spent their money on this. And as soon as the country starts to open up, those profits are going to go down. And guess what? These profits did not go down. They continue to go up. So, yeah, it's uh, again, we've talked about it every week almost. The, the growth of the game is it's phenomenal. Incredible. And uh, so I hope that everyone out there is getting their fix in, no matter what your flavor of, of role-playing game is, D&D &D or otherwise. Uh, I hope that things are coming out that are enjoying, uh, that are fulfilling your enjoyment of the, prof of the uh, hobby. Yeah. If you would like to DM at Origins, you can. Uh, Origins signups are now open, and Bald Man Games will be running an abbreviated three days of gaming this year. Normally, they go from Wednesday night through Sunday. Uh, this year, they're only doing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at Origins uh, because of expected lower turnout. But at baldmangames.com, you can uh, click on the Origins 2021 link and sign up to DM if you are so inclined. It is a great opportunity to, you know, play D&D, &D, get paid to run games, and uh, learn a lot more about this game by, by running games for uh, new and interesting folks. Yep. Uh, you better be vaccinated. <laughs> that, yes, yes. Do do that to to save not just your life but the lives of people around you. Uh, Dragon Plus is re out. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> do, 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 yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to complain a bit because I have this, I, and maybe my mindset's wrong, but I just feel like when you publish a thing, it has been published. And you can't expect the audience to somehow be tracking changes to the thing you published because it's like a magazine. It comes out, it has a date. Uh, and yet this is the second issue where there were changes. Issue 37, we talked about how the drow lore had sort of been slipped in there. Okay, I guess that's fine. Not a big deal. But this time there were articles that weren't in the original version that are there. And then all this D&D live coverage and sometimes it slipped into a, a, an article like there had been a preview of Strixhaven and now it has a little more info that was disclosed on D&D Live. Um, so sometimes it's edited in, sometimes it's a new piece. So Fizzbend's, uh, you know, Treasury of Dragons is announced. Now that is a uh, article that's added to it, a new article and there are new videos in there. And so I just don't know how anybody's supposed to track this, but it's there. Uh, the In the Works section is updated. The D&D &D Live article is added. 
character spotlight returns. It was missing before. Now it has a planeswalker, Dakon Shadow Slayer, as a CR-22 NPC foe that has some pretty neat magic items. Um, and the map section was missing, and it's now in there with Candlekeep Mysteries and Vagrecton's free maps you can download. So, yeah, I, I hope they can just get their timing down better next time, because I don't really want to have to research articles for yeah. news. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, but, you know, publishing is all on its ear compared to how it was even, you know, 10 years ago. So I, I can understand frustration. I can also see the benefits of waiting on something that has an announcement and then putting it. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but anyway, all that information's there now if, if people want to uh, read it. Another interesting little tidbit that came from Wizards of the Coast was on the topic of canon and what is canon for D&D and what is not. So Jeremy Crawford was talking with media before D&D Live, and he got into a discussion of what is canonical for uh, the D&D role-playing game. And I won't read you the full quote, but basically he said, you know, the Dungeons & Dragons studio considers everything uh as everything that's been in novels and video games and comic books and, and everything else as great expressions of the game, but they're not canonical for the actual game itself. They don't want DMs to feel like they need to read all the novels and all the comic books and play all the video games in order to feel uh, secure in their running of the game. And so anything that's in the product is canon as far as the Wizards D&D uh, studio is concerned, the role-playing game studio. Uh, and anything that has appeared in a book before 2014 is also not considered canonical for the fifth edition version of the game. Uh, apparently, Chris Perkins was on Dragon Talk, and he made a similar statement uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Crawford, Jeremy Crawford said that in an upcoming developer blog, they would be talking more about this. And so the, the question then is posed, well, what do, what do we think about this? <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I mean, Teos and I have, you know, we're from different backgrounds. We have different experiences in our lives. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we had different, different opinions on this. So I, we're going to take a minute to discuss it. <laughs> I believe you were hurt by Canon when you were a small child and it's I shaped was, everything you believe in. It, it was. Uh, yeah. So, so what is your take on this? Uh, I was hoping you'd start. Okay, um, I will start. <laughs> yeah, go for it. So I've, I've mentioned this before, and I am from a his history English background in college where canon has a very specific meaning. You know, throughout history, canon originally referred to or is, is thought to have been most important in the idea of religious texts. What is going to go into the Bible? What is going to go into the Quran? Or you you name whatever holy text you're talking about. At some point, someone decided what that was. So those decisions are very important in our world. Sure. What, you know, when you talk about Shakespeare, what did he write? What didn't he write? What do we think he may have written? What is attributed to him that we think maybe wasn't written by by him? Mm. You know, all of those questions are questions of canon. So I have always 
come to the the idea of canon as 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 an entity as something very important, very sacred, very relevant to the way we as human beings live and you know in in the sense that shakespeare it's not necessarily life or death but it's it's important to our culture so when i see talk of canon in terms of a role playing game or these sorts of pop culture fandoms it's not such a life and death thing to me and i have seen more creativity stifled by the concept of canon than i have creativity uh, boosted by it. I have seen it used more for gatekeeping than I have for accepting others into a fandom. So when, when I see canon, my initial visceral response is to roll my eyes. A, because it's usually spelled wrong with two N's. Uh, and B, because it it is only as important as the people who come to the fandom are willing to make it. And if a majority of the people don't care about it, then it really is only something that is a personal uh, choice, a personal a preference, as opposed to something that is holy. Hmm. So if I try to look at canon or to, at this kind of decision by wizards positively, you know, I think, why did they do this? One is sort of the freedom to not be held to the past, which frees up your design space. So mm-hmm. if someone wrote, you know, that candle keeps a certain way long ago, which candle keeps an example of how writers have written different things across time. Some of which we just say are truly incorrect or, or can't possibly be real. Uh, right. The idea that the monks in candle keep can't count all the towers in candle keep. Right. Probably was wrong. Yes. <laughs> um, certainly not what Ed Greedwin intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone wrote that, and we might say that made it canon, but you know, it's sort of bad canon. So we don't want to be beholden to it. And I and I appreciate not wanting to be beholden to the things that are sort of problematic, mm-hmm. uh, especially as we look at the history of the game and we look at things that drow or orcs or whatever. We don't want to be beholden to all of those canonical things or say they happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I think that's good, um, I for sure. Um, but to say things like novels aren't canonical, and that all non-book things aren't canonical, to me that's a little bit both heavy and also I feel like it's a bit lazy, in that there is constant work being done when these works are produced to make them good expressions of D&D and good expressions of what's come before. Most good authors work very hard to have those works uh, speak to the history of the game and to highlight it and bring it forward. And so to just sort of say, eh, we may or may not use any of that, mm-hmm. I think that's problematic um, in the long run. It will create uncertainty and, and maybe even a little chaos in it. And it also is, is I think, maybe a little blind to the benefits of what Canon has done for the game because a really easy example is everything to do with Icewind Dale. Mm-hmm. 
it all came from novels, right? Pract a very tiny bit comes from something other than novels. Right. And it's the le probably the least inter interesting part. And while there are problematic parts in the Drow series of novels, um, I don't, I, I feel like to just say that nothing there is canonical, well, it just means that now I don't know anything about what came before because there's so little, little about Drizzt or those novels in actual written 5e works yeah. that it's almost like none of it exists anymore. And I, and I think that's a step too far. Yeah. Well, there's two ways to come at it too. Uh, you can come at it as a fan and you can come at it as a designer. And I think, I think one of the defenses or, you know, one of the accusations against people saying none of this is canonical is laziness. And it's not necessarily lazy. It's not necessary that, they are ignoring everything that came before. It's just they do not have to be beholden to it. So you can still go back and you can still research and you can still use things from that as a designer. But you do not have to blindly follow it if it doesn't fit the story that you're trying to tell at the time, if it doesn't fit the times in which we now live. You know, all of those reasons, which, which you touched on, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's not necessarily, oh, they just don't want to go back and read it. So they're not, they're saying that it's, that's not the case. Uh, you know, designers are, can still, and will still go back and look and, and take the ideas that still work and use them. Uh, you just don't necessarily have to, uh, be shackled by it. And, yeah. and I think we can, I think we can agree on a couple of things as fans, uh, as fans, we can do anything we want. We bought the books. We're running our own sure. games. We can do whatever we want. And, uh, so in, in that sense, Canon, you make your own Canon and, and you should, uh, there was one other point I was going to make and I, I just completely lost it. So, <laughs> so you go ahead. Sure. I mean, making the game yours. I mean, I, I, it, it's sadly an important part of this discussion. I almost want to say that should be so obvious that the game is yours at your table that it shouldn't even enter this discussion because, duh, like do with your game at your table what you wish is always true. But more what the, 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 the part where this hinges on whether it's lazy or not is whether they do the work based on what they're creating. And I think an example of this would be the timeline of 5e adventures is an absolute mess. Mm -hmm. Not only does it have mistakes in it, like in things that are impossible, A and B can't be true if C is true, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a mess for anybody who wants to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and Graham, POC Gamer on Twitter, talked about this a little bit where he said, you know, there have been all these amazing uh, adventures that have come out and uh, we don't know what happened from them. And it becomes impossible to know what, um, what, what is the story of the Forgotten Realms, even though so much has happened. And, and, and one way to say it is it's just your story, right? Mm -hmm. Fine. But I think that when we look at fans collectively, there are enough of them that are saying, hey, I want to know what, how this fits together, right? How yeah. do these different adventures interweave and it's one thing if we said they never do but they do we can see time after time where wizards of the coast can't help themselves and they have to speak to previous adventures 
mm-hmm. but sometimes out of order, right? Right. And, and, you know, that, that also brings to the point to the question, what does Wizards owe its fans? Does it owe its fans an answer to that question or not? You as a creator, do, are you beholden to the fans what your fans want? And, and I don't think that, we're be, that they owe anything other than do it well. So pick your poison, right? If you're going to have a timeline that works and you want right. to be able to weave from one adventure to the other and mention them, mm-hmm. that's awesome. But now you've got to do that work because you are okay. saying that 5e adventures are canonical. So right. do your canon well, right? right? Or don't. And don't ever speak from one adventure to another. And we don't at all know when they take place. And that's another. But when you start mixing it, right. don't do it in a sloppy way. And same thing with canon, right? If you're going to say, well, none of that necessarily is true, are you going to start contradicting it all the time or giving us, all, is every book an alternate reality? Like, it could get really messy, right? Yeah. So, so does Wizards owe it to if the movie, if the D&D movie uses Morden Kanan, does Wizards owe it to the fans to tell the movie people, no, you can't do that because Morden Kanan blank. In this novel, he did this, so therefore he would never do this other thing. You know, is, is that... You know, X-Files is an example of yeah. a timeline where we know that they were in quarantine after this one episode for a month. But the next you know, two episodes later, it says they are out doing the things when they should have been in quarantine for a month. Yeah. Does that does that make the show bad? I, Sh- I think the movie is better if it if, uh, you know, if a magic missile is a magic missile and mm-hmm. a fireball is a fireball. Yes, you can artistically do whatever you want with it, but I think D and D is stronger when we kind of know what those things are. Or if you explain yeah. it, like, hey, you know, whatever the name of the mage is known for their blue magic missiles or their mm-hmm. magic missiles that look like doves, Jim Dark Magic style, like right. that's fine. Explain it, right? Like, okay. Otherwise, I think you're weakening the collective because here's the thing for canon, right? It's a collective experience. Um, and maybe that's the, the transcendence from being sort of the historical angle of what you were saying with scripture in, in, in a historical purpose or the works of an author. I think for role-playing games, it's about that communal experience. The fact that we all can come together and understand who Tasha is in some way, right. And derive that. That's why we bother to say Tasha, right? Why even mention Tasha? Like you could just invent a character. Well, no, there is a benefit to drawing from the history of the game. Mm-hmm. So do that, just, but don't do it in a lazy, mistake-laden way or, or in a messy way, a chaotic way. I don't want the Loki multiverse worth of canon possibilities in every product. I, I think that would drive us all bonkers, right? Because we all want to have conversations with each other. And if we, if, you know, if I were to say Tasha is some completely random thing, in one book, but if something else in another, well, that wouldn't really work, right? Like we break down that that communal understanding of what the game is. Mm-hmm. You know, Driz, the companions, Icewind Dale. There's a reason though, that's such a big thing. Mm-hmm. It has a communal expression through all these different properties: novels, video games, adventures. To where now we all understand it, even if most of us have never met Driz in character, and probably mm-hmm. won't, and probably don't want to, but it still benefits us, right? benefits some of us right 
or drives some of us crazy. <laughs> uh, right. And, and makes the game worse for some people because, oh, here's Drist and, you know, all the baggage well, that comes with it. But do it's, people go, oh, no, here's Icewind Dale? Like, I don't think. They, maybe I, they I'm, do. I mean, right. we're all different. That's, that's, that's true. That's sort of my point is what you want, right? What drives mm-hmm. you crazy when there's inconsistencies. And I totally agree with you as in terms of the group storytelling and the sort of talking, talking about the fandom and what's great about this game with other people and making those connections. But it's also a game that is meant to be personalized. Yeah. And so, so when you start to rely on or expect that sort of communal, um, that, that communal aspect that some of us love, it's completely the opposite for people who have made a cool thing on their own that they feel is now being derided because they went off and because Elminster in my game is this way. And we have a great time with that. And I don't care that you say in this novel, Elminster did this because this is what we like. And by, by talking about it so vehemently, it's, I I hate to use the word gatekeeping because that has a very specific meaning. And, but you know, it, it tends to place a judgment value on things that aren't it. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, again, like, I think like at the table, sure. You know, Elminster can be blue. We can do whatever we want to do. Um, but, but the question to me is more, you know, should one adventure have Elminster be, have blue skin and another one have green? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess you could, but why? Or if canonically in older works, you know, Elminster lives in a tower, but now we're going to have him live in some, you know, totally different place. Mm-hmm. You know, one can do that, but sort of why, right? Like it's great. An individual DM, sure. Perfect. You have a reason why that resonates or you think it'll work a certain way for your group. That makes perfect sense. But I, I just feel like we should, there is a benefit to the collective number of DMs probably most of them older that have a vision for what Shadowdale is like where Elminster lives and what the tower is like and who lives there with them. That creates a, a sort of shared experience that then any DM can massage and change. But if, if what we have is confusion to begin with, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like then there's no, sh- that shared experience is eroded, right? Maybe. But, but it, I mean, and that begs the question, can things change, right? And, and should they? Should should uh, Saltmarsh always be the sort of backwards fishing town? Or can we update it? Can we say, hey, things have changed here and and be free to do that? Mm-hmm. As not just as fans, but as designers. God, these are good questions. I know. Um, it's almost like we could do a whole show on this. <laughs> we, we almost are already. <laughs> wow. 
So, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So I, some folks have already on Twitter been chatting about this with us, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious what everybody thinks about this. And, yeah, I mean, we, we can uh, we can spend a little more time on this if if people would like. But yeah, uh, and maybe when that developer blog comes out, we can yeah, see ab- how absolutely, they, absolutely. How they say it. Uh, other news, uh, The Legends of the Magic the Gathering Adventures in the Forgotten Realms is a article that talks about, of all things... Canon. 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 Uh, <laughs> so you want to you tell us what, uh, James, what <laughs> sure, James Wyatt James, did here? Canon doesn't matter, but James Wyatt runs through some of the important NPCs and monsters in the Dungeons & Dragons magic set. And this is basically an enormous lore dump where mm-hmm. James Wyatt talks about the legendary personages and creatures from Mordenkainen, who, by the way, is from the Forgotten Realms. Uh, so is Asarak, uh, so is Loth, or anyway. Somewhere in there, there are some Forgotten Realms people, like Zariel and Cadibri and Faraday. Although, I guess Zariel, not really. Um, and there are some dragons, like Icing Death. That one's from the Forgotten Realms. Klaugiliamatar, um, one that I got to work with. Um, so all of these kind of big... NPCs and monsters, famous personages that show up in the Magic the Gathering card set. James Wyatt comes back and tells you about them, shows off the really cool card art, and then what's really neat is actually names the adventures or source books where you can find them, and I thought that was pretty sweet. Yeah. Yep. So that is up on the magic side of wizards.com. I'm going to skip that one. Because I want to come back and talk about all of those together. Uh, we'll just mention uh, the four three Magic the Gathering D and D adventure has been released. Uh, I think I want to come back and talk about all four of them at some point uh, as a whole. Well, I think there are there five. Yeah, there are five. There's another one. Yep. So we'll it's wait till all out. five are out, and then we'll okay. talk about them. Yeah. Um, on the business side of things, Evil Hat has shared their financial information for one of their Kickstarter Kickstarters, Thirsty Sword Lesbians. And it's an interesting uh, look at the business side of things. Evil Hat has been very generous with their their shared information about you know, how they run their business. And if you think a $300,000 Kickstarter makes you a ton of money, uh, <laughs> you can go look at what Evil Hat had to spend in order to fulfill that Kickstarter and how that $300,000 is not quite uh, $300,000. <laughs> Yeah, it leaves them 88000 after all their costs, which they break down, and that's to be split with their partner and their, you know, royalties and things like that. So, And that has to cover their salaries for all the time that that project took and all kinds of things like that, theoretically fun future projects. So it's, it's good. It's, a, it, it's a, I think a necessary read of how challenging this industry is and what small companies do and, and why they need our support. Yeah, and it's especially valuable for people who think that, you know, people publishers, you know, charge too much for their products yeah. uh, and to expect everything to be $1.99. Uh, that is an interesting look at how much it actually costs to, to create something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's this other little tiny bit of, <laughs> of, uh, of news that critical roles. Darrington press is now relaunching the Taldurai campaign setting, which was originally published by Green Ronin, uh, but it went out of print. And uh, Matt Mercer, James Hake, and Hannah Rose. Uh, James and Matt were the original authors, obviously. Uh, Hannah Rose is joining them to rewrite this. Uh, it's a guide to the uh, Taldurai setting. 
which of course is part of the critical role world. Now it has 5e stats for magic items, uh, subclasses, backgrounds, more creatures and stat blocks for the members of Vox Machina. It doubled or nearly doubled the page count and it advances the timeline two decades uh, from the Mighty Nine, uh, which is the second Critical Role campaign. Yeah, and releasing maybe late this year, probably early next year through Darrington Press. So that means no Green Ronin, no Wizards of the Coast. And at one point there had been this sort of like, hey, maybe there'll be more books or a series of books as Wizards of the Coast. If that's happening, it's not with this book, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the interesting, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is this is a re-release of that original book. Yeah. So it's, it's unclear if there is a direct relationship between wizards and, and uh, Darrington press and critical role now, or whether that would re-release was just its own thing. But even more interesting is that beetle and Grimm's, which does, deluxe versions, boxes, props, and everything for many of the uh, the Watsi published adventures are doing a deluxe version for this book. Yeah. So we'll see how that, uh, how that plays out. That's pretty cool. Hey, and you've also been on some uh, shows recently. It's been busy and wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I was on the Tome show for edition wars, which, uh, was looking at all the different editions of the DMG. Now it's on the five E they've had some amazing guests, uh, but they were able to lower their standards to allow me on the show to get you on. That was, that was nice of them. That was really nice. Uh, courtesy. Uh, I, I think I had blackmail on them or something. Right. So they, they had me on, uh, to talk about chapter six between adventures, which I mean, you know, I love me some downtime. So and then you were on Team D Beyond as well. Yeah. I mean, I was there just for the theme song and uh, for uh, awesome host Amy Dallin. Uh, I joined author Riley Silverman. We had a great time discussing what we know about the upcoming Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons, uh, how excited we are. We showed off minis and talked about all the dragon lore that we adore, uh, as well as all the exciting surprises that we've been hearing about. So it was a neat kind of way to the fan geek out about all this. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to go get, get some more of Teos. I don't, Woo! you know, an hour, a little over an hour is not enough of Teos for me. I have to go get, <laughs> get me some more. In case of emergency, break glass, click yeah. on D and D beyond YouTube, break YouTube. Uh, and last but not least the Kickstarter for the dungeons of Drakenheim, uh, supplement. Uh, it's, it's a campaign slash adventure set in a city that has been destroyed by meteors and uh, it is being done by the dungeon dudes who have their own Twitch stream, YouTube channel where they give advice as well as run a, uh, a live stream of their game. And we are at $935,000 with four days to go. So when this show drops, there will be one day left. I assume it will be, Flirting with that million dollar mark, we're already at 9,200 plus backers. Uh, you get the campaign setting and the adventure and minis and maps and dice and videos with tips on how to run the adventure uh, if you support the Kickstarter. So if it that seems like something you'd be interested in, there will probably be one day left if you download the show immediately when it drops. So uh, give it a give it a look. I mean, fabric map. There's some cool things in this Kickstarter. Yeah, fabric maps. They're nice. 
Wow. So I feel like we did an episode and now we uh now we're going to talk about chapter five of Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, the Monsters of Ravenloft. This is the last chapter that we're going to talk about since we've jumped around in the book. Um, but if you want to find out what we thought about the other chapters and what are in them, you can go back to our previous episodes to yeah. uh to to get that information. And I'm sure Teos will have a handy guide on alphastream.org at some point telling you how to get Indeed. to all of these places. Yeah, it's oh. already up and I just I'll oh, add yeah. the uh it's it's there. It's there already. It's so, there already and you can, I will you know as the, the when this last one drops, I will add the link and then we can uh, you can have your full indexed view. All right. So, let's talk about Monsters of Ravenloft. Uh, the first section of this chapter talks about ways to make more horrifying monsters, making regular monsters horrifying or using monsters in horrific ways. And it is overall pretty good, uh, pretty good advice for any campaign, not just for a horror campaign. Uh, they talk about six ways to transform regular monsters into horror monsters and they, they give uh, these six tips. They're monstrous origins, notorious monsters, describing monsters, monstrous tactics, monstrous traits, and monstrous minions. So we're going to touch on each one very, very briefly. Um, monstrous origins. Uh, what, they, what they say is monsters in a horror setting like Ravenloft don't have to be members of a species or a group. Uh, they don't have to have the same backstory that they have in a regular campaign. So if you want to take some aberration and you can just stick it in to your campaign, to your uh, adventure as its own special sunflower, as its own yep. special thing. And uh, then it gets, you can give it its own origin story and twist it to whatever your needs will be. Uh, anything to add on that? So this and some of the other sections, it's, it's, I, I had trouble sort of finding how this resonates. Like it's, it's all good. Mm -hmm. I, it just didn't wow me the way the other sections, I mean, the other sections really often wowed me with the level of knowledge they imparted mm -hmm. and how they did it for either an experienced or a new DM. Yeah. And here, I think it's, it's just it's kind of soft suggestions rather than really useful tips or, or enough of the how to. And I wish the writing were a little more right. instructive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They it's do fine. give a, they do give a couple of examples in this monstrous origins, but it's basically what I said. They're like, you know, yeah. take a Yanti aberration and just divorce them from the whole Yanti background. And it's mm -hmm. just a thing that you can say, this monster appears and give it whatever background you want. Uh, next was, Notorious monsters, uh, pretty much the same thing as above. Uh, it's good advice no matter what. Uh, you tell the characters about the monster before they actually meet the monster. You know, give, it its, give them its description from people who, eyewitnesses who have escaped or lived through an attack by this monster. And it just ups the tension for when they actually meet the monster. Good advice. Yeah, this is really, really great advice. I mean, good just advice. even a simple zombie, right? If you have yep. like... A, you know, blood splatter on the floor of the room before we encounter it or, yeah, claw marks or something. And just even that sort of stuff ups the, the, the horror feeling as they're preparing to go into the next room kind of thing. Yep. Uh, so, so next is describing monsters. And they give three tips for describing monsters. Obviously, take, 
take some time to describe the monster to the characters when they first interact with it. Tell them what it looks like. Well, we'll get to the tips. First, engage all the senses. So as you're describing it, describe looks, sound, smell, hopefully not taste, but maybe taste. Uh, <laughs> you know, what it feels like when it hits them, you know, those sorts yeah. of things to to just emphasize it. Something that we may, if we're running you know, a regular sort of adventure, we don't take the time to do. Just take a few seconds to do that. You don't have to do it every time the monster attacks, but if you do it the first time, each of it uses its special ability or when the first time it attacks or the first time it's hit by a character to, to describe those sorts of things. Um, emphasize the wrongness of the monster. So players will have in their minds the idea of what this will, what this creature will be or how creatures normally act. So when it's outside of the norms, put an emphasis on that when you describe it, how, the eyes of the monster rather than being focused are wandering about, uh, you know, and anything like that. And it's especially important when you do it uh, and emphasize a specific trait of the monster, whether it's an attack or a defense or something, because then it brings the narrative element of the monster in line with the game element of the monster. Yeah. And the last tip under describing monsters is make it personal. Uh, so don't make it personal in the sense that, you know, player A has a fear of spiders. So I'm really going to up, you know, really going to emphasize the the personal hatred that this player or fear this player has of spiders. Not like that, but make it personal in the sense that you give the player the chance to think about something on their own terms and then tie it to the monster. They don't really give a great example of this. Yeah, so, I don't love the examples. So, so here's the example I, I gave. Say the, the monster has a fear ability or an ability that brings, the, brings some sort of mental despair to the character. Ask the player, what moment in your character's life did they feel the, feel the most afraid or the most dis despair? Then when they tell you that, you haven't even said that's what the monster does yet but you're putting them in the mindset of their character and about that. And then you can say, Love it. that's exactly what you, your character feels like, you know, the time when they were at the orphanage and they were being bullied. That's yeah. what you feel like right now. So that's letting the player Perfect. name, name their, their thing and then tying it to their character. And you, you're there. Yeah, that's that's lovely. I, I love that. And it's funny because they sort of say, don't dictate the character's actions. And they kind of do that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is much better. We're, and that's a great technique, Sean, to say, ask a question of when they felt a particular thing, revulsion, dread, fear, whatever, and then right. lean into that. Yep. What's That's the great. ugliest, most n n nauseating thing you've ever seen? All right. That's what, that's, what's happening here. Where would you not want to put your hand? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Next was monstrous traits. And so the monstrous traits, or, or, sorry, monstrous tactics is interesting because they say, you know, use tactics that are different to highlight just how strange and terrible these monsters are. And they give the example of the face biting goblins where these goblins, uh, they're actually hobgoblins, but they, they're called goblins by the people of that, uh, of that world of that uh, realm. Domain. Yep. Uh, 
they say, so rather than the goblins coming in and attacking with their short swords, which is in their stat block, have them bite the, these people, have them bite the adventurers in the face. However, the bite only does two points of damage average rather than the five points that the short sword would have done. And I'm like, okay, yes, that is a different tactic. Uh, but just have the bite do the five points of damage. Yeah. Right. Because that gets the point across. It's it's bad to say, oh, this horrible goblin does this really weird, horrible, terrible thing to your character. One point of damage or two points yeah. of damage. It's have it, or you need to double the number of goblins so you have an average of four damage <laughs> and you're pretty close. You know, right. But, yeah. So so there's no reason why you can't change the the thing. It's it doesn't break the game to have them do the actual damage that it would have done. Right. So just describe it differently, yeah. yeah. And that's just that's something that you as a DM can do without breaking the game, without you know, it's even add a point of damage to it that, that more than it would have been because you, right. you want to get that point across that it is a tactic. Uh, and then they talk about, you know, basically optimizing your tactics after just after saying, <laughs> yeah. do, do the bite that only does two points of damage. Then the next bit of advice is optimize your tactics to show how really dangerous this is, which, yeah. Okay. That's, that's if that's what scares your your players and their characters, then totally do that. Uh, you know, and to add anything to that, yeah, I, I think that in terms of tactics, I would do more. I would think more about situational things or pacing things. Like it's one thing to face a foe and then have more rise up, at, you know, right afterwards, right? So you think it's an easy threat, but it's actually horrifying. Or that they're jumping out of sealed crates, and there are a ton of sealed crates, so you don't really know how many there are. So more like things like that, to me, would be what would achieve horror and dread, right? There are sarcophagi, and some of them pop open little by little with fearsome things in them. You know, then that is, I'm worried, and I don't know what it is that's going to yeah. happen. Like, that's... Right. There, there are lots of ways that you, as a DM, as Teo said, you know, gave an example, that you can do to put this unease in the players even if it's not a very dangerous combat as teo said to you know to have 20 sarcophagi and the first two rounds something comes out of each the players start thinking in terms of the numbers that are presented and going we can't face 20 of these so mm -hmm. it's you know it's a great way to mess with their minds without making it overwhelming in the the combat part of the game uh, next is monsters traits. So you can switch traits between monsters to give them, you know, a sense of wrongness. So, uh, I used earlier in the show, the, uh, adhesive trait, right? <laughs> so you, you could just stick that on an yeah. ogre, right? And you stick yep. to the ogre and, and it's different and it's weird. And then the player's begin to think, oh my gosh, what what are we going to do? What is this thing? It looks like a hill giant, but we're sticking to it. What else yeah. is going to happen? You know, all of those things. Uh, but try to stick to the ones that have a horror-evoking um, element to them rather than just something that's more powerful in terms of combat. Uh, so, you know, make it strange, make it different, yeah. And, and I think the important part is is telling that story of it, right? So that we understand why, like a banshee that they mentioned, you know, the horrifying visage or, you know, the whale, like 
those are all interesting things, but don't just do it because you might kill characters. It's because the Banshee as a creature is super interesting when we know why it cries, mm -hmm. when it's part of the story, right. right? And the best Banshee encounters are ones that tell us about the Banshee. So same thing. If you're going to go and add a Banshee cry or a horrifying visage, then tell us that story about this monster that you changed yep. up. And yeah. so your character, tell the tell your players, right? That yeah. And if it's a very powerful ability, like a banshee cry is, give the players who engage with that story the chance to use their story knowledge to evade that. Right. So if if the if the goblin, the strange goblin creature that has the banshee's wail, uh, you know, if you say the name of its favorite pet that it lost and that's why it's doing this. It can't use that ability. You know, right. all of that is important, not just to hit your players with it, but to yeah. engage them in the story of it as, as Teos mentioned. Yeah. And that's what way more fun. I mean, your characters will have way more fun in encounters. If they're doing things like preventing the monster from using its horrid feature by soothing in some way, then they will just beating it down every time. And the last was monstrous minions. So they give a, several examples of abilities that minions to a larger threat might have. Uh, one is alien mind. So if you try to affect the mind or read the thoughts of uh, one of these minions, you have to make a saving throw or become stunned because what's going on in this minion's mind is so messed up. Uh, same thing uh, with minion's mind where it can't be controlled or charmed because its connection to its master is so strong. Um, there's a sacrificial minion. When the minion dies, its master regains four times uh, the minion's CR and hit points. So that can be at higher levels. That could be pretty powerful, but yeah. at higher levels, the DM sometimes needs some things that are pretty powerful. Yeah. So, so I like that. Um, selfless bodyguard, the minion can use a reaction to take a blow for its master. You know, we've seen that in certain monsters already. And then the telepathic minion is, is pretty self-explanatory. The minion and its master have a uh, telepathic connection. Anything to yes, add? Then, no, no. I, I like the next section, which is they sort of, it's not quite a wrap-up, and I almost wish it were a wrap-up. What I really loved is they'd taken all these lessons and pulled them together into an encounter. Um, mm -hmm. That would have been neat to showcase the whole design. But they sort of add to the concept and then take it in a slightly different spin where they say creating unique monsters. And they say you can create a unique terror using all of these lessons. Uh, so you have a troll, idea of a troll that ambushes adventurers while they rest. And then you start playing with this and saying, well, what if it has um, the grappler trait of a mimic, the amorphous trait of a black pudding, and give it a story that it hides out in bags of holding and sort of travels through them. And then it'll sort of come out in this weird amorphous troll form and attack a sleeping person. And, and the best way to do this is to tell the characters about the story of this bag man. <laughs> and how it haunts bags and bags of holding and things like that. And of course, you've got to give them a bag of holding. Right. Exactly. And as now, they're, as they're being <laughs> sold, you know, as they're being sold the bag of holding, or the first time they encounter a sage, while they see, oh, have you ever heard of the bag man? And right. there, you, now you've got paranoia. 
running mm-hmm. rampant in every short rest. Yeah. They're, they're going to they're gonna be worried about what comes out of the bag. So yeah, it's cool. a really, really great example. And, and, and they kind of write up the whole beware yep. the bag man piece. It's, it's good stuff. Yep. So, and then the final part of the chapter is the actual bestiary, which gives you a bunch of new monsters. And I'm going to let Teos talk about these for a bit. So, two really quick things that stood out to me as a designer. First, alignment is gone. Yep. And sometimes I want to go like, there are times when I was reading this and thinking about this, I thought, this is fine. This is okay. Um, maybe it's problematic to have alignment and say, you know, all creatures of this type are evil or whatever. But then there are other times that I found myself actually wanting to look up at that block because the background of the, of the, the explanation of the backstory of a particular monster wasn't so clear as to what their moral outlook was and how much they varied. And so then I would look at that and not find it there. And I, and I wished it was there. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Alignment? Yeah, I, I think we're going back to the canon argument just on a smaller scale, right? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to be told what the alignment of anything is. I want to use it in the, my stories the way I want, and I don't want players coming to me at any point and saying, well, we just saw this monster in the, you know, and it attacked us, but it's a lawful good monster, so why would it but do that? Couldn't we just say all monster? Couldn't we just somewhere, right, alignment is a general indication there are huge variances and you as DM can do whatever you want at your table. Isn't that good enough? And probably 60% of people would, would say, okay, yeah, I get that. And then the, or the 40% don't care about that. They see, Hmm. they see a thing and they want to be an expert in that thing. And so even a suggestion of the thing becomes its truth. Yeah. I mean, and I think the reality is alignment is going to disappear from 6E. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it's just heading that I, way. But, I, I know. I, I understand yeah. what you're saying. But the, the other thing is, and we're going to talk about this now, is I want any information that I need to run the battle in the stat block, and I want everything else out of there. Hmm. And the yeah. next thing that you know is unusual nature, because many of the monsters have a trait called unusual nature. And all it says is they don't require sleep or they don't require air. Or they don't require food. And I don't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I equate alignment with that because I'm going to use this monster the way I want. I don't need to know while I'm running the adventure in that stat block what its alignment is. Uh, I need to know other things about it. Put, you know, put it, it makes me put its alignment the, up in in the you know, up in the fluff text. I'm cool with that. If you want to say they generally do this, yeah, you know that's fine. I, I remember in in two e the uh, three ring binder series of monster compendium monsters. Those always tended. I liked that design a lot. Uh, at, at least at that stage of my life, and it had these sort of repeating sections like ecology. Uh, I don't know, mannerisms, like sort of that kind of thing. And, and monster after monster would always speak to these things. So, you know, if I knew that I would get the moral outlook either in the text or in a section, cool. What I don't want is to not know what this real intention is, like if it's not clear. Um, and similarly with this unusual nature, I mean, I it, I just assume undead don't need to breathe unless right. you're going to tell me otherwise. I don't need a four yeah. lines or more eaten up of the stat block on this. Um, 
get it out of there. And yeah, I, I hear you and I are on the same page. Just put that in descriptions if it matters. But in general, I, this is where I'd expect that undead means something. Right. Undead so are just all... go with that, right? Right, exactly. Ooze means something. Yeah. You know, maybe describe that as 4th edition did, you know, what that means separately, which it, it is interesting. 5th edition doesn't really do that, right? The types are just a vague... It's a mm -hmm. concept mm -hmm. rather than a series of traits. And I don't know that it needs to be a series of traits, but I think just some general things like, right. like this can be in that section yeah. um, or in the monster itself, not in the stat block. Yeah, it's a uh, you know it's an interesting as designers it's interesting to see the shifts in 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 this. So uh, we and, get a yeah, go ahead. No, you, you got say, it. <laughs> we we get a bunch of monsters here. They cover a wide range of CRs from one eighth uh, to twenty one. And how about if I just run through them and we do some quick color commentary on them? Sounds good. All right, body taker plant CR seven plant. What movie is this, Sean? I believe it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> yes, that is correct. If you can, gra it can grapple you with vines, pull you into its central chamber. It doesn't say how many creatures at a time can be in the central chamber, which I thought was a bit of an omission. Mm -hmm. But uh, inside, you gain exhaustion every hour. You apparently can't get out. Um, and if you die, you come out as a podling. So an individual creature, you know, this is really bad news for them. Uh, but the podling is only CR half. You're a physical copy of the other creature, apparently perfectly physical copy, perfectly made. Uh, DC 20 wisdom check to realize it's a copy, but we do have a neat kind of table of behavioral quirks. Um, so I, I, I had trouble figuring out how to use it mm -hmm. in a story kind of way. Yeah. But you wouldn't necessarily something. want it to happen to the PCs, but happening to the having to yeah. the people around them. But it's important to remember that a podling is only a copy of the creature. And while it has some sort of semblance of its memories, it is not the actual creature. So it can't, yeah. it can't you know, digest a, an archmage and go around casting wish. Right. Um, it's literally just a half <laughs> CR creature that can slam yeah, a slam things. attack. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And this, this monster, and we'll see it in a couple others where there's a higher CR monster and then a lesser version, but it's such a disparate between seven and one half. That's mm -hmm. a hard adventure to write. Yeah. And I wish they'd brought them a little closer so that it would work better as, as encounters, right? If you're, yeah. Yeah. And as a story and an adventure, it's going to cohesively work. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the podlings are more a, a story plot element than they are a monster. That's going to be a threat. Uh, at least that's the way I looked at it. Yeah, and then then I say, well, then I want a monster that works, a podling to work differently. But all right, yep. whatever. Yep. Um, boneless CR one undead. This is super creepy. Yeah. Love this. It's the skin of a creature, is what it is. And mm -hmm. the lore tells us, and the lore sometimes in this book is really good around these pieces. It tells us you can pair it with a, something like a skeleton, and have the like this kind of come off of the skeleton so you combine those two monsters that way that's awesome yep um it can crushing embrace you to wrap around a small larger smaller creature and you have to save or take damage at the start of your turn or, or uh, the boneless's turn uh because it's grappling and crushing you inside um yeah, yeah it's i mean Everything that you said plus, this is a great monster. Um, as a CR1 monster, be careful because 
it has a multi-attack. So it has yeah. two slam attacks. If two slam attacks hit, they each do five points on average of damage. It says a CR1 creature may be your level one, level two when you're fighting this. Uh, so if the two slam ta- attacks hit, that's 10 points. And they're plus five to hit, so they're not not weak in that sense. Then it can use its crushing embrace as part of the multi-attack. <laughs> and that's only five points of damage as well. But uh, they have to make a saving throw at the start of each of the boneless's turns. So they do get a chance to escape. Right. But if they don't that's escape, 15 damage that's 15 damage for, if you don't for a first-level character. Uh, yeah. If you don't escape and then make that strength saving throw to resist its crushing embrace where you're also blinded and unable to breathe while being crushed. Uh, so yeah, it, that, that can be pretty beefy. So, so just be, be aware when you're using that, mm-hmm. uh, that creature. So then we get brain in a jar, CR three undead, classic creepy monster. It detects living things around it. It can use chill touch, mind blast, and various spells that are all meant to feel like psionics. Um, it's a great, great monster to use. And there is a neat version of it that walks around in uh, uh, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. That it's also worth checking out. Um, Carrion Stalker, this is a great, another really, really good monster. CR3 Undead, it's like a chitinous mass of pincers and tentacles. Begins as a larva that infests a corpse. So you can have them emerge from undead, which is a super cool idea. They're fighting zombies and these things burst out. Um, it, it's pretty, pretty good. It attacks mm-hmm. with three tentacles. Each one has the chance to attach to a target. And if that happens, it can pull itself into the target space. Um, once attached, it can do a larval burst in a, once per day in a 10-foot radius, and everybody has to save or be poisoned. And if you're poisoned, you have larvae that are infesting you. Oops. Um, and then you take seven poison at the start of each of your turns, which is not insignificant. And if you die from this, larvae will grow into new carrion stalkers. Yeah, and it's not just if you die from this. If you are reduced to zero hit points because of this poison, you die immediately. Oh. It's there's no yeah. death saves, so that oh wow that uh, at at challenge rating of three, if players this is the importance yeah. now of knowledge of of characters do they know because if they don't know this when they're starting this combat they're just gonna do their typical oh if he falls it's okay we'll get him up oh guess what he fell and he's not getting up with your uh, cure wound spell yeah um, that's a, this this is worth telegraphing yeah. Uh, two characters like have like a page from a journal of some, you know, someone relating how terrible this was or something. So they know because that's terrifying when you know that you can't allow yourself to get to zero. (laughs) That's much more terrifying. And the other thing is that that larval burst, it has no time limit. It's not for one minute you're poisoned. It's forever. Now you do get a save every round, but if you continue to fail that save over and over and over again, you'll just die. You're taking seven points every time. So yeah, that's also something to, to be yeah. aware of. I, and I, I admire that because uh, I once kept track of how many saving throws I failed in an online game and it was 14 in a row. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, when I, winners I, like me can really yeah. <laughs> yes. go down. Like, yep. Uh, how about the carrionette? Oh, the carrionette is very interesting. Uh, 
So as Teos notes in our show notes, if you had a creepy doll on your uh, Van Richten's bingo board, now's the time to mark that square off. Um, mm-hmm. These are toys or constructs or dolls that have been created by a toy maker or someone. And then that toy maker wished so much that this toy would be alive that it, it sort of does become alive in the sense that it takes your soul and switches it with its and then, you know, controls your body forever while your soul is trapped in the toy that you were, that you made. Uh, I would expand this lore to be any child as well. Any child that has a beloved mm-hmm. toy, because you can do some really Ooh. creepy stuff with that. Oh, wow. uh, and so it has a false appearance. So you, uh, you can't tell the difference between it and uh, the, the regular toys. It has a silver needle attack that only does four damage but you need to make a charisma save or you're cursed. The curse forces you to subtract a D4 from every ability check or attack roll. And then while you're cursed, it can try to swap souls with you. And it's another charisma uh, saving throw. So, Hey, barbarian, how's it going? And if you fail it, the carrying net swaps bodies or souls with the target. Um, the carrying net keeps its wisdom, intelligence, charisma, but uses the body statistics of note, though, it can't use any class features or proficiencies. So if they do take over the barbarian, when the barbarian attacks, it can use its strength mm-hmm. to, to, you know, to great axe somebody, but it can't use its proficiency bonus. Doesn't have proficiency. Rage or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. no rage, nothing like that. Uh, and you can stay, you're unconscious. If you get switched, you're unconscious for an hour, and then you wake up inside the carionette, inside the uh, the construct, but you can't do anything else. And yeah. unless the the construct is um, destroyed or a protection from good and evil is cast on you, you stay there. And I think you, if I'm reading it correctly, the the ways you switch bodies are you don't want to have your new body die or your old body. If your right. actual body dies, you die and the carionette dies. Mm-hmm. So don't do that. <laughs> That's the no, no. Yep. Um, if you can deal damage to the carionette's new body with its silver needle, which you mm-hmm. have, cause you are inside of it, but unconscious, if someone sure. can pick that up and do it, yep. that will swap them back. Uh, or a protection from evil and good spells. So I don't know that killing the carionette oh, ends this. Sorry, I thought I read. But then I guess you could just pick the needle up. If the carionette's um, body is destroyed, both the carionette and the target die. You're right. Okay, never mind. So when you're yeah. in the carionette, you can move and you can actually do things after that hour that you're unconscious. But an hour later. But nobody knows. You so can't talk. So nobody knows yeah. who you are. You're just this creepy doll that's moving around. Um, it's, so that it's could super be fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know how this would all work. I, I, I have to almost play with this. Like this is, you know, on my list. And then I think you and I were both thinking like, Oh, this is just an adventure concept where you just swarm the PCs with carionettes. Yeah. And now the adventure is you must play the carionettes to find the, you know, your bodies. And right. That would be an awesome, fun adventure. Wonderfully fun. And I think these are some of the few monsters I've seen that actually can pull off that kind of thing because, you know, subtracting a D4 when you're at low levels can be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And they're armor class 15, so hitting them is actually quite hard. Right. And 
with CR1 creatures, you could actually swarm a, fel a fair number. You could have a fair number of them in an encounter uh, and maybe pull this off. So <laughs> it's interesting. Yep. It's yeah. good work. Yeah, it's it has a chance to be super fun with the right group of players. All right, so moving on. Death's Head is a CR1 half undead flying head, and it comes in sort of three forms that I don't know how they exactly chose these three, but they chose three. There's just sort of your thing that bites. Then there's a Medusa head that petrifies, or a Nothic head, okay, with a mind-bending bite uh, that limits the actions you can use. Yeah, my my advice here is... When I started reading this, I'm like, oh, cool. They're, they said for each monster type, there's a different form of the head. And I'm thinking, okay, I want to see like a dragon death's head. Mm. I want to see an undead. But they just gave these three types. So here's for you designers out there. Here's a nice design test. Make a different type of death's head for each creature type. Ooh. Dragon, ooze, uh, you know, giant, you name it. And what would that look like? Keep it at, at the same CR, CR one half. But what does the giant's head do? Does it butt you? Right. What does the ooze head do? Mm. You know, does it envelop yeah. you? What, that, that's wow, a, this, this would be a great uh, test for the, the folks who are in that design yeah. challenge that's going on. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. Yep. Wow, great, Sean. All right. So then we get the other part of it. We just got the death's head. Now we get the Dullahan, which is this headless undead warrior, CR 10 undead mythic monster using the design we saw in Theros, um, where if, you, if it's reduced to zero hit points, it comes back at 97 out of its 135 hit points. It summons three death heads to its aid, and it gets special mythic actions. The summoning death heads is really weird because this is a CR 10 monster. So summoning three CR one half monsters to aid you that have plus three to attacks What's the point, Sean? Yeah, not unless they're going to use the help action every time. Yeah, <laughs> they use it, yeah it's just because they're not going to do, they're not going to hit much. And when they do, they're not going to do much damage. So, you know, yeah, just it's really more of a story weird. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's also like if you're searching for your head, why do you have all these heads? It can hurl fiery. I guess it just keeps yeah. collecting heads that aren't the right head. I don't know, but <laughs> it can hurl a fiery skull. One thing it does do that's kind of neat is it has a battle axe that if it crits, you must do a con save or lose your head. An interesting design. If you don't need a head or if you have legendary actions, then instead of losing your head, you take extra damage. I thought that was interesting. Like You can't behead a creature that has legendary actions if you're a dull head. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm okay with that. Um, the legendary actions and mythic actions are okay. I did the ma monster math damage on this. Overall, it's a little low on monster damage, um, but it, it's an interesting story. And I think if you just swapped out those CR1 half heads to actually be something that threatens um, or make some special heads like Sean was talking about, then I think it could really work. Yeah, the Gallows Speaker is a CR5 undead. Uh, it forms in places where many people have died, such as a Gallows. And its attacks uh, are flavorful impressions of the deaths that's seen or that mm -hmm. the target may have seen or may yep. come to see. Yep. That was cool. Yeah, it has some neat sort of, yeah, that kind of mind-twisting, future-seeing kind of angle was done fairly well there. Yeah. The, the Gramishka are pretty... I focused on sort of the low-level ones just to see. And uh -huh. the Gramishka is very interesting, and I use interesting in every possible uh, yeah. in, intonation of that word. 
So the, the Grimishka is basically a devil cat gremlin. Uh, it's undead, but it is... Uh, monstrosity, actually. Did uh, I write oh, undead? Did I you write undead? Wrong. Okay, my bad. Uh, monstrosity. So it uh, it's sort of the rust monster to... <laughs> To the what the rust monster is to fighters, the yeah. Grimishka is to arcane casters or spellcasters. So it, it it's a CR one eighth creature. So right right there, you're like, okay, it shouldn't be able to do a heck of a lot. Uh, it has a bite that does three points of piercing damage plus three points of force damage. So it's doing High six damage. So it's doing a D four plus two plus a D six, um, and when you are within 30 feet of a Grimishka, and remember there's challenge rating of one eighth, so you may have several around you, even at low levels. If you cast a spell within 30 feet of it, it can choose to take a reaction to have one of three things happen. Equal chance on a D6. One to two, the Grimishka emanates magical energy, so each creature within 30 feet of it must succeed on a DC 10 constitution saving throw or take 1d6 force damage. So if you're surrounded by eight Grimishka and you cast a spell and all eight of them get that, you are taking 8d6 of force damage unless you make a DC yep. 10 constitution saving throw. Okay, that's, that's something. On a three or four on a D6, the Grimishka surges with magical energy and regains three hit points, 1D6 hit points. Okay, that's that's fine. On a five or a six, the Grimishka explodes and dies, and one swarm of Grimishkas appears in its space where it died, and then the swarm attacks you. Now, a swarm of Grimishka is CR2. <laughs> what so, could go wrong? So if you have six Grimishka and they all and you just cast a spell without knowing what's going to happen, and all six of them do these weird things. With six Grimishka, uh, for a first-level party, it's like a medium uh, encounter. If two of them two of them are going to explode and possibly do 2d6 of damage to your first-level characters, uh, some of them are going to heal, and the other two are going to turn into CR2 swarms. So now you have a... Super, super deadly encounter for first level characters, like four times, five times the uh, XP value of what you were 50 bonus XP. Yeah. Of what you started. 1350. Wow. And and the swarm at CR2 is no joke. uh, Because if you cast a spell at it, if it's a third level or lower spell, which it probably will be if you're fighting it, uh, it will always miss. Uh, if it succeeds on a saving throw. And if it's an attack roll spell, it will redirect it with its reaction right. to another creature. Right. Even worse. And its bite does 12 uh, plus 7 force damage. So on, if it hits, it's 19 damage on a bite. Uh, and so, it can get into your space so yeah. that you, uh, you know, can swarm yeah. into so yep. you're like and it, just locked and in it automatically succeeds on saving throws. That's what I was trying to say earlier. Automatically succeeds on saving throws against spells of third level or lower. And attack wow. rolls always miss. And then it can use its reaction if it is missed to redirect a, a spell with an attack roll. So you're shooting your, your rays at it. Uh, they're going to be redirecting and automatically hitting 
not yeah. has a chance of hitting automatically hitting the creature and of its the, choice. The thing about this is swarms, the, you know, the key to swarms is usually you're like, oh, well, let's use AOE through spells. Right. Because they're, or just plain old spells, because they are resistant to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing because they're a swarm. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? The magic can't affect them, and if it had an attack roll, it redirects. So it, right. it, it is such a, the learning curve on this encounter. Yep. Oh, this could be such a hard encounter. It, it makes me put want to put it in an official level on adventure just so people would talk about it for years the way I talk right. about the Silt Runners, <laughs> Dark Sun Encounters encounter yeah. because this could be just legend, legendary yeah. bloodbath levels. And, and what, what drives me crazy is this is a low-level monster. I want this at, at yes. CR 20 yes. with that limited spell immunity up through 8th level. And, right... If you cast a spell or if you have magic items within 30 feet of it, it does things, yeah. right? I want to, I want this sort of, this sort of wild and powerful stuff to be able to challenge 20th level, not first level. I had that same thought with the, uh, carionette, that kind of idea of, of just such massive, here's how the world works in a way you never thought it would kind of monster. I agree. High level monsters should be able to do these kinds of things and, and they tend to be not like that. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't yeah, take up a lot of room in a, in a stat block either. Right. It's, yeah. it's very simple. Two sentences, three lines. Boom. You've, you've got it all. Uh, all right. So next we have the CR nine Jiangxi. Uh, this is inspired from Asian lore and one of the domains uh, leans into these heavily. Is a vampiric undead. It has interesting weaknesses, uh, like seeing its own reflection. And then what I thought was super fascinating, if it's touching or wearing a holy symbol. So I guess you got to decide whether you want to impart that knowledge upon them. It could be really neat if you do so, especially if the creatures are under or the characters are underpowered compared to the Jiangxi. Mm -hmm. um, it can draw energy from a creature within 30 feet. And this is sort of a burst it does, and if it affects at least, actually, it'll deal damage regardless. So when it does this action, it then gets the ability to fly and move f 10 feet faster than it usually does for seven days. <laughs> really, really neat. Yeah. Um, if you die from that energy blast, it you rise as a white, so there's that too. And then it can polymorph to change sh shape, uh, beast, humanoid, or undead, retaining its usual statistics, but... Uh, just changing the form, kind of neat. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, like I didn't hit any of the higher level monsters, so I am at your mercy okay. now for the rest of. Well, them. the loop guru is what you would do if you said, "I want to take a werewolf and I want to super it up." Mm -hmm. Right. So this is a CR thirteen nice. monstrosity shape changer, um, and it's pretty good. It has advantage advantage on attack rolls against any creature missing some hit points. That's great. A DM can easily you know put in some damaging terrain or an earlier trap or something like that and now your advantage on all your attack rolls uh it's lycanthropy is super hard to shake so it has a story angle to it where you must slay this monster so you could combine this with getting away or having to cure someone there's a lot of story potential in the stat block um you can change shape to humanoid form dire wolf or hybrid and like usual werewolves as stat block for each of those things and it can do some neat things like the legendary action to attack or to pounce or change form and bite all in one. Um, so pretty good stuff. The damage is, is fairly good for its CR. Um, so this is a fun one. I thought it was pretty good. I like the story angles. 
One that's a little bizarre, the Necrichor, is sort of the ichor of maybe that came dripped off of an evil god or the remains of a failed lich. They show it in a jar, which is kind of how you must trap it. And we're told in lore that people will trap these things, but then they'll get loose. The only way to kill it is you must douse its remains with holy water or place it in a vessel on hollowed ground um, once you've defeated it. Otherwise, it's going to come back. A spider climb, it's basically this ooze-likey thing, pseudopods that paralyze, necrotic uh, damn bolt that it fires off. Um, and then an interesting thing is this blood puppeteering, uh, which is a recharge six power, con save, or it controls a creature that's missing hit points, attaches itself to it. So now it does the whole thing where if you deal damage to the character, half of it goes to the Icor, half of it to the character. Um, and it telepathically controls it. And this and another monster both have wording around mm-hmm. how it controls actions that are a little bit confusing because it's not clear if it's saying that on the character's turn, the character can still take an action or not. I, I was a little confused by how the wording is. But. Yeah. Anyway. Um, then we have a Nosferatu, so we're trying to hit all the vampire flavors here. CR7 mm-hmm. version of an undead vampire, um, or sorry, CR8. Mm-hmm. Um, it regenerates when not in sunlight, takes damage in sunlight, spider climbs, um, it drains hit points with its bite. And what I liked a lot about this one is its blood disgorge. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the super cool 4E Undead Sturge that would vomit up blood. That's what this thing does. It does so on a 15-foot cone and con save or necrotic damage, and you can't regain hit points for one minute. So that can get pretty tough. Um, Then we have some really interesting lore about these priests of Osobus. Um, The lore here is around when Strahd had not yet become a vampire, he worked with um, uh, the the Olmquist uh, with this with this character Olmquist, and they would try to f- go off and adventure and do good things. But eventually, uh, the Olm- uh, when Strahd became evil, the Olmquist Inquisition formed to try to prevent this kind of thing happening in the future. And one of the enemies that the moral Strahd had faced off against was Osobus. Asabus was betrayed by his priests who feared that he would eventually consume their souls and he loses his physical form but became a dark power. The priests of Osibos, because they turned on Osibos, were cursed. And the curse is, you're immortal, but I won't let you know when I'm going to remove your immortality kind of thing. Okay. And that, that seems weird, but the whole point of the stat block is that when they die, they roll on a table and they will probably come back with a really cool feature. It's called mm-hmm. Boons of Undeath. Uh, and it can be significant, like I can cast Circle of Death. Uh, and it can be interesting, like I am now, I, my, I burn away my flesh and I'm a flame skull now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can be really interesting, but they generally, I think, still keep their stat block. Um, and then there is the chance that they actually don't come back and they're, they're just, uh, they, they die. Um, and... Uh, they have a soul blade. When they attack with the blade, they can, if they kill you, kill a creature with it, they um, uh, can then form a shadow later from the soul that they drew in. And actually it actually becomes a tattoo for a little moment, and then they shed the tattoo to create a, 
shadow. Really fascinating design. It is yeah. really neat. The, the, I love the stories behind that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give Teos a break and say next is the Relentless Killers. So if you're like, well, what about Jason and Michael Myers? How how are they going to come into this? <laughs> Here we go. We have the Relentless Slasher and the Relentless Juggernaut. And they are CR8 and CR12 fiends. Uh, they're basically vicious butchers serving out a fiendish pact where they can just keep coming. They keep coming after you. Uh, the slasher causes a bleed effect. So if you get hit, you take the damage, plus you bleed every round for a D6 damage. You get hit again, that bleeding is 2D6 damage. And as each additional strike hits, that bleeding goes up by a D6. I love that mechanic. Um, I wish it wasn't so easy to get rid of. It's all it takes is magical healing and everyone has a potion of healing in their pouch. Right. Or, you know, so I would love to uh, have it be because you also, if you can't do magical healing, it requires a DC 15 medicine check to bind the wound uh, real quick. So I, I would love to have it be a, you know, DC 15 arcana check to have, to make the magic strong enough to actually staunch that, uh, that bleeding. Yeah, and this ties into what you're talking about before about you know these are high CR monsters. The Juggernaut is CR twelve, like, and they're fiends. Like, make them tough, right? Yeah. And yeah, uh, the Juggernaut has some additional flavorful attacks to slow an opponent or to knock an opponent prone, um, and a deadly shaping ability that shapes the environment into something that it can actually hurl at a target. Kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I got really excited when I read Implacable Advance, which is this legendary action where it just moves super fast, and I saw that it dealt 55 damage to everything in its path, and then I realized it's every object in its path, and I was like, oh. Yep. <laughs> and then you've got basically the serial killer uh, charts about what what it does after it kills. The, the killer turns its victim into a work of art. It yeah. leaves poems or messages behind. You know, all, all of that sort of creepy stuff that uh, is available to you at the low, low price of whatever you paid for the book. Um, we then get Star Spawns. We get two of them. And Star Spawn had a whole bunch of stuff in fourth edition. Here we get just the concept that there are weird, enigmatic, far realm type beings. And they sort of come and express themselves in different forms. And the way the encounter is supposed to work, the way the monster is supposed to work, is you start with a lesser star spawn, which is a CR 19 aberration, by the way. Um, and it can be an, and it can take the form of some other monster, so it can appear like a uh, a medium creature of its choice uh, for a while to sort of do whatever plot things it's doing. Um, and then when you fight it and defeat it it instantly returns as the greater form. And only by killing the greater form, which is a CR-21, can you actually uh, vanquish this thing. Nice. So already CR-wise, you're like, all right, it's 19 and 21 all in one. You know, we're talking about fairly high level. That's good. Um, the greater form is a huge pillar of violent flesh amalgamating all it has previously consumed. The lesser form... Uh, is roughly bipedal, agitated mass of organs, self-cannibalizing alien orifices. I like that wording. And appendages it has previously consumed. Yep. Nice. Um, yeah, and there's some pretty decent things. The One of the most interesting pieces was the greater form can expel bile that deals acid. And if you fail your saving throw, a gibbering mouther shows up next to you. 
I, I love it when that happens. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, which again, pretty low CR, but at least you have that saving can throw confusion type effect. So it probably yeah. could be interesting. Yep. Uh, next, we have the Strigoi, which is basically a an advanced form of a Sturge. So it has a claw attack and a proboscis attack. Um, it's pretty stealthy. It can obviously fly. Um, and then if you get hit by the proboscis, it does the same sort of hit point uh, thing that a, a Sturge would do, but it also regains hit points equal to the necrotic damage that it does. So, And then it can summon Sturges as well uh, once per day. We get two swarms, the swarm of maggots and the swarm of scarabs. Um, and we get a swarm behavior table that you can use to sort of change any swarm up a bit. Like uh, it makes up skittering noises that sound like whispered chanting when it moves. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, the swarm of maggots deals damage, uh, has a chance of giving you a disease. Uh, and when you roll, when you finish a long rest, you roll a d6 to determine the disease effect you had. This can be blinded until a long rest. Your hit point maximum decreasing by five, and that can't be undone until the disease ends. Or a disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls onto your next long rest. Ooh, mm -hmm. no player is gonna love that one. Yep. Uh, the swarm of scarabs. Uh, if it starts in the turn, if it starts its turn in the space of a dead creature, the corpse is destroyed. <laughs> if you hate your characters. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I like that when it deals damage, it's also burrowing into your fresh, uh, flesh, so it continues to do damage at the start of your turn unless you mm -hmm. stop and hurt yourself. It's very kind of old school. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you were talking about the Umquist before, the Umquist Inquisitors are in the book. They are CR8 humanoids, and there's three flavors. The Inquisitor of the Mind Fire, the Inquisitor of the Sword, and the Inquisitor of the Tome. So the lore behind this is Almed uh, once worked with Strahd when Strahd was mortal to fight evil. So when Strahd turned evil, Almed worked with his friends to organize three orders into this Inquisition. Um, so, you know, the three types are, or the three orders are of these three types. Did you yeah, want to say anything three, about the types? Yeah, the three NPCs that they um, that that uh, Olmed work with. Mm -hmm. um, so Cosima's group, Inquisitor of the Mind Fire, power that blazes within your mind, has ranged psychic damage as its multi-tack along with a longsword. It can cast spells and command creatures within 60 feet, forcing them to do an action that the Inquisitor chooses. It's again got that kind of wording that confuses me a bit. The Inquisitor of the Sword, which is the group headed by Ansel, all about psionic physical mastery. It can heal itself and remove a condition at the start of every turn. It can attack and teleport, cast spells and teleport as a bonus action. Pretty cool. The Inquisitor of the Tome, Tristian's group, Telekinetic Scholars. These have a force bolt that pushes. They can do spell casting. They can implode, which I didn't really understand why the power is implode because it's not like they're gone, but then yeah. they deal AOE damage. I don't know. Uh, and then a reaction to deflect an attack, raising their AC by four to a total of 18. Um, these are neat. I think they're a great stat block to look at when you're looking at fantastic, strange foes. You could reskin these very mm -hmm. easily to work together and, and be, you know, an enemy party or, you know, weird eldritch empowered foes, something like that. 
We have a monster called the unspeakable horror, which I think everything that we've talked about is fits that bill. But these are specifically half-formed evil that lurks in the mist. Uh, the things that the dark power have not quite yet formed into something more specific, the remnants of ruined domains, nightmares, and so on. Uh, and they are customizable. So you can make your very own flavor of unspeakable horror. The four body compositions, we can roll a D4, such as loathsome limbs, which are spider-like legs, many appendages and thrashing tentacles. Then you can also roll on the limbs table. Uh, and then you can have a hex blast action with another roll. So, you know, there's all different sorts of permutations of what the unspeakable horror can be. It's neat that they added that to the the mists have dangers in them. Yep. Um, next is the Vampiric Mind Flare. It's a CR5 undead. Ties into the domain of Blutspur, where the damaged Elder Brain created these fine mind flares to be vampiric, go out and feed, and bring back sustenance. Uh, the tentacle can grapple. Then it can deal damage with Drink Sapience and also inflict a level of exhaustion and regain hit points. So if it does that a couple of times, uh, your players will not be happy about having multiple exhaustion levels. Um, bonus action to disrupt Psyche. It's a psionic 30-foot radius saver and capacitated one-minute repeat save at end of turn. So it's sort of like a souped-up mind flare in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we get we get a Were raven, which is something that we actually saw, I believe, with Curse of Strahd. Uh, but they are... Just like I said, were ravens, shape changers that can change into uh, human form or raven form. And they have a society around them which tends to fight against evil. So they, they, they tend to keep to themselves, but they will also be very charitable. They will give things that they uh, have found to help others and generally fight evil, fight against Strahd. So then we have zombies ending the book. Uh, the zombies have first an initial zombie apocalypse information in case you wanted to think through what that's like. And it gives you some options that use the new uh, monsters here. Uh, we get the swarm of zombie limbs, CR1 undead. It attacks but a, like a regular swarm, but it also does grasping limbs attack for damage and restraining and to add some real trouble to this, uh, you you repeat the save at the end of your turn, and if you fail it, you take damage. So it really can be this sense of like the things clawing at you. Mm -hmm. uh, zombie clot is a CR six undead. This is sort of a huge mass of zombies that somehow have sort of stuck together. Um, they have a horrid stench kind of aura within ten feet. Con save or poison damage and poisoned. And they can do two slime attacks or a rechargeable attack called Flesh in Tomb, where you fling a clump of corpses at a creature within 30 feet, deals damage, restrains them. They're totally covered by this clump that fell on them. And the only way to get out is to ha deal damage to it, which I like that kind of mechanic. It's sort of unusual. So you must divert your attention from attacking the zombie clot enough to free the character who's otherwise going to take a bunch of damage each turn. Uh, I like that kind of concept. Uh, we don't see a lot like that. Yeah. So that's a lot of monsters that you we even can. We have a plague spreader. Oh, I forgot about the plague spreader. Yeah. 
So this is a CR4, our very last one, CR4 Undead. It has an aura within 10 feet. Creatures starting their turn must make a con save or be poisoned and can't regain hit points. It does a slam attack. And just once per day, it can do violent miasma in a 30-foot radius, con save for damage or half. And if you die from that, you rise as a zombie. Uh, the natural adventure building thing here would be to have a number of humanoids around that are weak, mm -hmm. right? Like just normal villagers or something, and then they will turn into zombies. Uh, so if you want that kind of a horrible scene in a marketplace, these monsters will certainly do that, the zombie plagues, brother. I always Woo! look for a horrible scene in a marketplace, but that's just me. Well, that's because you shop at uh, the mall. So it, It's true. It's true. Where else <laughs> would you have the zombie apocalypse start but at the mall? <laughs> so there are the monsters, and there is Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft uh, strung out for you over several episodes. That was a great book. Yeah. I we Really good. We both really enjoyed it. Uh, I know I did, and... Wish I had more time to run some adventures <laughs> in any of these uh, domains, but yeah. uh, but it you know it's a great book to mine for ideas, mine for story, mine for game mechanics, or mine for information on how to run not just a horror campaign, but any sort of campaign where you are really engaging the players in a visceral way. It's a great point. You know, this is the kind of book that acts like an old school box set. Like it just, mm -hmm. you could have endless adventures here. I mean, if you just tried to play in every domain, you'd never finish. Um, and yeah, all of the advice was really top notch. So I'm excited about what the team at D&D &D is doing when I see a book like this. Like this mm -hmm. is really good stuff. Yeah, yes, it is. So thank you for listening to our reviews. And thank you for our patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on the, these interwebs? You can find me at alphastream.org. Subscribe and get free stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at alphastream. And uh, what about you, Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirect mark.com to talk to us or if you want to give us some comments on the show on any of the topics we discuss you can go to twitter and follow at mastering dnd and talk to us on twitter mastering dungeons is a misdirected mark production the media arm of encoded designs so teos now that we've finished this massive tome of horror what are we going to do now let's not spread the plague in a 10-foot radius I will do my best. Wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>